excited about what's happening in children's ministry, part of the inspiration of that comes um, from some of my study with what um, Israelite children went through. And at the age of five, like we would put our kids through kindergarten and then they would begin learning their ABCs and stuff. Hebrew children would go through a pretty intensive, maybe some of you have heard me talk about this, they would begin a preliminary study. And this was baseline. This is where the whole culture got such a fluency in the history and the faithfulness and the, and the availability of God. And they would learn the law and the prophets. So it's beginning with the first five books of what we now know as the Pentateuch, well, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And so they would go through about a three to four year study of just memorizing this. This was their introduction to education. And then after that, boys and girls would both go on and begin to learn the prophets uh, and the law, or excuse me, the history, and then they would begin to learn the psalms as well, especially the girls, because that would be part of how they would conduct the worship through the psalms. It was a fascinating but very intensive study to the point that they got to 12 years old. That was their rigor. Uh, and at that point, most of them, the vast majority, would go on to learn family trade. So if they were fishermen, or if they were growing wheat, or if they had olive groves, or whatever the family trade, if they were working in Masonite, or they would go on to that. Now it was only the sort of the select few, the sort of the upper crust of the academic pool that showed great mastery over the subject matter would continue on. Now, uh, the girls would begin off, oftentimes a very domestic pursuit because they would marry very young and there was sort of this idea that their kind of trajectory was going to be able to be some kind of domestic homemaker and they were going to have to learn some skills. Boys would learn much more of the, the trade. But for the few that were chosen, they would go on to an advanced course of study where there was this kind of call and response. It wasn't just memorizing and answering questions. It would be sort of answering questions with the question. And so you start to see glimpses of this when you see Jesus at 12 years old being able to hold courts in the temple courts and then being amazed at the mastery of his knowledge. So much so that his parents just left Jerusalem and he was still dialoguing with all of these adults. He was part of that elite. Now what would happen is at about 15 years old, there would be some of these young boys that would identify with some of the local rabbis. Now, there was really two kinds of rabbis. Some rabbis would be camped out in a town or a village, and they were instructed with giving the educational care to all of the children. That was pretty much most of them. But for some select few, they had a special kind of authority, a kind of authority to interpret scripture. So now you start thinking about the times where Jesus came along and said, we've never heard of someone speak with this kind of authority. So Jesus represented the trajectory of his life as one of those unique kinds of traveling rabbis that would be able to reinterpret. You've heard it said, but I say unto you, and it was a reimagining, a, re a reawakening of how to view the intent of God's commands. Now, what would happen is, in this advanced course of study, is that one of these young men would come to a rabbi that they sort of resonated in. Maybe they, they kind of looked up to him, maybe it was a traveling one, maybe it was a local one, but they would essentially do this. They would come up 
to this rabbi and they would say these words. May I follow you. What they were in essence saying is, do I have what it takes to become like you? And the rabbi would sort of size it up. The rabbi would have a knowledge of who some of the, 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 the eager learners were, some of the advanced learners. And one of two things would happen. That rabbi would either accept them into what would became a formal apprenticeship, or what we would call discipleship. And I'll explain what that means in a minute. Now, if they weren't accepted at that point, all they were left with, they got some good study, but essentially, these boys would return to their family and begin to learn the family trade. Jesus comes along, and it's a different kind of rabbi. He turns the table on this whole thing, and instead of being approached, saying by one of these young men, can I, can I be like you? Can, may I follow you? Jesus comes along, and what does he do? You come follow me. In essence, what Jesus is doing is a couple of things. Number one, what he's saying to these young men, and by the way, I think women too, what he's saying is, you already have what it takes to be like me. Really significant when we understand, especially if you're one of those people who grew up in and around legalism, or if you struggle with guilt and obligation, if you deal with regret and shame, you have to understand that from Jesus' earliest invitation, he says, you already have what it takes to become like me. Now, who does Jesus go to? Since he's not waiting to be asked, and he goes ask that, he goes and asks the young men who are doing what? Already working the family trade. He goes up to a couple of fishermen who probably went to a rabbi somewhere and said, do I have what it takes to follow you? And they're like, no. And they returned home and started casting their nets. They returned home and became tax collectors. They returned home and started working in the fields. Jesus goes and finds them in the shores and in the, and in the fields and says, you come, follow me. As you are, you have what it takes to become white. Now, it's important to understand that the title of rabbi wasn't necessarily an office or a position that we would think of a, a teacher or a pastor. It was sort of a, 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 a term of reverence and respect with someone within the community. And really, it wasn't just a student like, like we think of it. We think of Christian education as, let me take what's in my head, age of rationalism and reason, and deposit it in your head so that you too can be transformed and be a disciple of Jesus. No, it was much bigger than just being a student. In fact, the student's goal wasn't to just gain the rabbi's knowledge. The student's goal was to somehow become so that they became this pursuit. They left everything behind and wanted to be with the rabbi 24-7 because there might just be a teachable moment. It wasn't to just learn what they knew, it was to become like who they were. And if they weren't going to be with them, they wanted to see how they were in all situations and how they reacted. Does that make you comfortable or uncomfortable? Because this is also parenting 101. All of a sudden, your kids begin to take on both your strengths and your affections and maybe even our shadow side at times as well. And you're like, oh my gosh, could you stop looking so closely? 
See, discipleship, or what we like to refer to as an apprenticeship process, is the taking on of one's lifestyle. It's how we steward our influence and our knowledge and our gifts and our resources in the investment, or what I like to think of, the spiritual reproduction into another's life. It wasn't just about learning what they knew. It was about becoming like who they were. Now, occasionally, there was that one disciple there would be one of those apprentices that would somehow hit a snag or somehow become disillusioned with the rabbi in which they were following. I think most people, not most people, I hear this story a lot. I was going to church, but this happened. And they usually name a spiritual leader. Maybe it was an elder. Maybe it was a pastor. Maybe it was some expression of legalism. And because they said this to me, because they treated me this way, I walked away. Occasionally, in Jesus' day, a disciple would grow disillusioned with the rabbi which they were following. Maybe the best example you can think of right away is Peter. Now, what we know of Peter is he was a ready-fire king kind of guy. He was a guy who was known as being a zealot. In fact, zeal was, was part of his mantra. He was, he was motivated because what he wanted to do as a zealot was see the overthrow of Rome and see Israel reinstated as, as, a, as a cultural identity, as God's chosen people group. Now, Jesus, he becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy where, where Jesus says, you're going to deny me three times, no, I'll never do it. And in that moment, when push comes to shove, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he, he sort of fulfills that moment. And in his despair, just grow, grow, runs away and weep. But after the resurrection, what we have is the master rabbi, because Jesus is not like any other rabbi. I mean, this was a deal breaker if there was a deal breaker. Everyone would have understood that if you were following this rabbi and you denied them, you broke covenant. There was no turning back except Jesus goes and finds him fishing. What does he do? He restores them. And how does he restore them? Feed my sheep. Three times. To sort of mirror poetically the denial. Do you love me? Three times. Feed my sheep. Three times. What Jesus is doing is to Peter, to us, you can still be like even if your spiritual growth looks like two steps forward and one step back, you can still be like it. There is something so beautiful and gracious about the renewal process, about the restoration, about the grace of Christ that, that, that we miss in Christian education. And so what I want to do is help us understand what it means to be renewed. Now, the other picture of this where a, a disciple or apprentice of Jesus that didn't experience the renewal was Judas. See, Jesus chose 12 men formally to come and follow him, except Jesus didn't even score a 100%. So in your pursuit of following God and being faithful to him, and if you have perfectionism, if you are been an overachiever, if you've always been the smartest kid in your class, understand this, even Jesus didn't get the 100%. Amen. 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 You're right. He's one of us. Oh, Jesus 
but that story is kind of interesting. So someone asked me this week, do you think Jesus chose 12 knowing that, and, and, and just expecting him to turn I said, no. I absolutely believe that Jesus chose them with great optimism, believing that all 12 disciples would in fact carry the gospel to all nations. Jesus' strategy was train a few so that we can reach the many. It wasn't grow by addition. We're going to grow by multiplication. What I'm going to do with you, you're going to do with others. So watch me heal the sick. Watch me raise the dead. Watch me feed those. Watch me act out justice because guess what? When I'm not here, you're going to do it. So guess what? When we're not together as a church, you get to do that too. You get to lay hands on people, pray for healing. You get to come alongside those grieving parents or those grieving widows. You get to come alongside all those people whose needs are not met and be wise. So Jesus, or excuse me, Judas has this moment where it says from that time on. Now, for the last few weeks, we've been talking about this pivotal phrase, this turning point phrase that occurs at least three times in the Gospel of Matthew. And each time it happens, there's a shift in the ministry and the mission of Jesus. And what we talked about two weeks ago was this picture where Jesus began to shift. It says from that time on, Jesus began to predict his own death. What Jesus shifts from in Matthew 16 was that he was now not going to spend very much time with the masses. He was going to spend the rest of his time. Again, Matthew's 28 chapters, so right out in the middle in ch chapter 16, he shifts and says, it's all about reproducing myself in these apprentices. And one of the things I, I mentioned last week, just by sake of review, was that there was two simple observations. And see if this is spiritually true, because when he makes this statement from that time on, what it's doing in Scripture is it's connecting something that has happened in the past with something that's happened before. And if there's one thing that you and I always need, is we need to connect the faithfulness and the history and, 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 and the provision of God with what's happened, with what's occurring right here, right now. Because if you're like me, we get blindsided, we get blinded by the circumstances today. Sometimes we're blinded with prosperity and we forget how God has afforded us by His gracious provision what we have. Other times, we're in so much despair that we can't see the light and we ask the question, how could God or where is God when? To which I would say, from that time on, Matthew teaches us then and now to connect what has preceded us with what is occurring today. That's why that phrase is such an important phrase for us begin to understand. Because when we're stumped spiritually, emotionally, financially, relationally, it's not about what's happening right now. It's understanding what God has been doing in the sequence of our life so we can get on track with the trajectory of our life. And so here he comes. And he interrupts this point. And in Matthew 26, we have another glimpse of what's occurring here. And Jesus is having this moment. So again, Matthew is 28 verse or 28 chapters long. This is in chapter 26. He's already been predicting his death. He starts to do it again. And let me just tell you the story. It's up there, you can follow along, but it starts to say there's a woman 
who Jesus has gathered, and a guy who's known as being a leper, it's probably a guy who's in recovery, but he still gets the reputation, Simon the leper. And a woman comes and breaks a very expensive jar of perfume. And there's a little bit of a cry of protest because there's some people in the crowd, and it's a small crowd, so it's the disciples, it's the one who got sort of all access to Jesus, who still don't totally get it. Wait a second. Don't squander this valuable thing. And Jesus defends it. And what does he say? In just a second, the poor will always be among you. Which is a really important thing. What does it matter to bring a bag of groceries? What does it mean to give an extra coat away? What does it mean to actually give a gift card away? Are we solving poverty? No. But we're resensitizing our hearts and bringing hope to another. That's what we're doing. It's not that the haves don't care about the have-nots, it's that most of us simply don't know them. Because when you talk about have to share one, if I have two shirts and I don't share one, the people in my neighborhood aren't actually hungry and aren't actually cold. But I start to go out of my way and I find people whose needs are different than my own. And God begins to bring a little bit of hope and encouragement. Mary doesn't have has kids over Mary Ray, not Mary in the Bible. Mary Ray has kids at Highland Park Elementary, but what she does in many of her afternoons is go to Doss Elementary because that's where so many immigrant moms show up. And what she's been told is, you guys aren't just bringing us help. They don't need animals, but you are bringing us hope. Because they see the news. They hear the hostility. They even feel the hostility. But you guys bring us sewing machines? Come on. Thanks, Mary, for helping us lead them. So Jesus has this moment where he kind of interrupts their stewardship, thinking that they were squandering something more valuable. And he says, um, I tell you the truth. Whatever, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done for me will also be told in memory of her. Now, this is where Judas and Peter are really, really similar. You've probably never heard it preached this way. But let me just explain this in verse 14. Then one of the twelve, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and asked, What are you willing to give me if I hand him over to you? So they counted out for him 30 silver coins. From then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. From that time on, Judas had made his decision. What was happening in front of him he could not connect with what had happened in the past. Why? Because his expectation wasn't being met. Let me say this, just to give you a little context. By way of a couple weeks ago, 30 pieces of shilling, scholars tell us, was the going rate to purchase or replace a slave. So here he is as a devoted apprentice of a master rabbi. And because his expectations aren't being met, He's like, I'm done. This guy, this, he's going somewhere. He keeps talking about his death. I'm thinking, overthrow Rome. I'm not on this bandwagon anymore. And for the price of a house servant, he sells out the master rabbi. And the Hebrews reading this text would have would gasped at that. Nobody would have. Now, other scholars also say that Judas Iscariot was most likely 
like Peter, a zealot. So in his expectation is Jesus was supposed to lead the revolution. This was Che Guevara. This was this was this was Avita. This was like this was Caesar Chavez. This was like let's lead the revolt. Let's bring it. We're looking for Martin Luther King. Come on, let's create a new systemic, new normal, so that we can kind of gain our power structure again. He's like, no, I've got to die. I've got to suffer. And Judas is like, from that time on, he's like. Sometimes we have some crisis in our life that forces us to do something. My point 
is that I think we're pre-wired for change however reluctant we are or however you know, embracing we are of the need to change. By change, I mean actually grow. The Jewish people had a regular kind of regimen, if you will. It was a sort of practice. And part of that practice, and I like to use the language of renewal, they would use the language of repentance. Repentance is a tainted word. You've heard me share it, but I only use it within the context of what they would use it in. Um, they would go through as part of their ceremonial, part of their worship, the prelude to worship would often include ceremonial washing, even ceremonial bathing. Now imagine, you don't have running water, you don't have indoor plumbing, no one takes daily showers and daily baths, it's a dusty desert region. So the idea, and the Hebrews were largely very pragmatic, they were very, um, very tactile in how they would express themselves. If they were grieving, they wouldn't put on comfort clothes, they would put on something scratchy because they wanted to remind themselves that I'm supposed to be uncomfortable and grieving. But when they come to worship, they would go through a ceremonial washing. This was part of how they worshiped because physically washing themselves was also symbolically of how they were kind of cleansing their own heart. They wanted to initiate change, initiate some kind of renewal just by the act of bathing. We would refer to this as baptism. Now, most of us think of baptism as a once and for all thing. They would think of it as part of how they renewed with their relationship with God. I think this is really significant. Now, in Matthew 26, let me just kind of give you a few thoughts about this passage, uh, oh, excuse me, not Matthew 26, um, John chapter 3. We've talked about it in the How to Share One, but in, in, in Luke chapter 3, John the Baptist is out there, verse 7. John said to the crowds who were coming out, now keep in mind those crowds were Jewish crowds. They were good church folk. They were people who were rich in the establishment and understood all that God had commanded. They understood the faithfulness of God. And he greets them. And we don't really want John the Baptist on our welcome team and in charge of hospitality. But he says, you brood of vipers, which is like a bunch of snakes. Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit, keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to ourselves, we are Abraham. Uh, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not bear, produce good fruit will be cut down and be thrown into the fire. What should we do? I, I would be thinking they would answer a little more defensively. They said, what should we do? And he says, the man with the two tunics should share with him who has none, and the one who has food should do the same. What is John saying? See, here's the picture. First word we need to understand is the word repentance is actually the word teshuva. If you've been around Mission Hills, you understood this word is rooted in not a reminder of your inadequacies. The word teshuva actually literally means a turning. Sometimes it's a turning from, i.e. sin. Sometimes it's a turning toward where we started. It's a return. And in most cases, we need to understand that God is trying to interrupt us in our brokenness to draw back to ourselves. And those don't always involve good circumstances. 
but they're desperate circumstances that actually require us to depend on him, to seek him more. In fact, one of the things we established was struggle is our greatest teacher. Suffering is our greatest teacher. Prosperity is actually one of the most numbing things. So when we pursue the path of least resistance, we have to understand that we might be getting low in complacency. This is the church in America. So understand that God is inviting us to participate more deeply with him. And it's not that he's afar off. It's that he's greeting and beckoning right there with us. And so he has this picture, and he invites them to, to, to sort of repent and turn here. Now, Jesus and John both talk about the same thing when they say, repent for the kingdom of God is near. And, and, and he talks about it in real practical, tangible ways. Produce fruit that keep your, your repentance, which is simply a chance to meet needs. Oh, you good church folk, you come out here, except that there's hungry among you. There's people who are homeless among you. Oh, there's people that actually are going unclothed. What? But I know my memory verses. I know my Bible stories. But I haven't missed church in a long time. It's like, produce fruit with your repentance. And it's such a beautiful picture of how he invites them. Um, and so when John preached repentance, what he was saying, and this is what his nuance is, he's saying there's an even playing See, when we come to faith in Christ, we all start at ground zero. And so when all of these Hebrew people were coming to him, what he was saying, actually what was offensive to them, was that he was saying, we all come to faith in Christ the same way. You Jews come the same way as non-Jews. And don't count on your heritage. Don't count on your lineage. Just because you were raised in the church, don't think you're better than you really are. We all start in the place of brokenness for all of sin and falling short of the glory of God. And the Jews would have wanted to riot him over this, thinking, we're not the same as those. And I think so much of the time we can do our mental gymnastics and say, I, at least I'm not as bad as them. Or, or, or somehow their worse, their sin, at least I don't do that. And John saying to us, in God's eyes, it just creates a separation. We all find ourselves in the same place. And so to, to, to tell Jewish people that they were to be baptized or to repent is the same way, in the same way non-Jews would have been offensive because it challenged the Jewish belief, the Jewish notion of what it meant to be saved. See, baptism is all about how we begin Baptism is about how we can begin to turn. The notion of baptism is how we can identify with what it actually means to be a new creation in Christ. See, whoever is coming clean, whoever is leading a lifestyle of abuse, whoever is in a spiraling, self-destructive way, the kingdom of God is at hand. When people are expressing their, their faith in, in generosity, when people are growing in, in their compassion, when people are actually being interrupted in their busy routines to stop and care for, when people are growing out of apathy, the kingdom of God is at hand. And it's moving forward. This is what it means to produce fruit. And so he's inviting them and us to this sort of ceremonial washing. Not as 
the same thing. But as a, as a, the question is, what is your mechanism for it? What is your regimen that you might practice for confession or examination that would allow the Spirit of God to resensitize your own heart without it being some crisis moment? Let me just say, uh, when, uh, when my mom, in 1957, she went through, and some of you might be familiar with this story. My mom was an immigrant in the 1950s, so when she was 17 years old, she stood at the federal courthouse in San Francisco with this federal judge in front of her and this group of immigrants. There was Italians, and there was Irish, and you know, there were Scandinavians, and there was people from all over the world. And you had to um, demonstrate a certain proficiency in the language. You had to know the government and how it works. You had to know some of the U.S. And then you stood up and you pledged your allegiance to the flag. You declared as part of your citizenship your allegiance. But one of the most profound things that the federal court judge said to him, he looked each of the people who were becoming citizens in, and he looked them all in the eyes and he said these words, you are all citizens by choice. Everyone else is by birth, but yours is a choice. And you can imagine how that sort of, I'm choosing to be an American this day. And it was, it was like the early pilgrims. It was like, let's burn the ships. We want to be Americans. And so they identified, and mom pledged her allegiance. I think coming to faith in Christ is the same way. And if you have never had the chance to express or pledge your allegiance as a kingdom citizen to the Lord Jesus Christ, it starts there. You can be spiritual, but all I'm saying is meet God at an altar and just say, I do to you. I want you to have my whole heart and my whole life. And that's where it starts. It doesn't get easier, but it aligns us with God's plans and God's purposes. And so in this moment, what he's saying is there's a chance to turn and declare your allegiance. Now, faith is, is a journey. We're all encouraged to take next steps. I think the tendency is to think of faith as a little bit more static, like somehow we spiritually arrive. So we go like this. Let's see. I'm tithing my 10%. Check. Um, uh, I'm volunteering in ministry. Check. I've been baptized. Check. I pray a prayer um, and ask Jesus into my heart. Check. And then we kind of run out of things to check and we go, I'm good. But we also would say, I don't feel transformed. To which I would say, because in God's domain, in the kingdom of God, faith is always a journey. And he's always inviting us not to the product, but to the process of taking next steps. So the question is, what's your next step? We talked to you about baptism, real specifically. Some of you were baptized as children, and I would recognize that as a very symbolic gesture. Some of you have never been baptized, to which I would like you to entertain the idea of water baptism. Some of you were baptized when you had a bunch of cruddy buddies in your life. Maybe it was your BC days, your before Christ days. Some of you maybe were baptized as an elementary school kid, but then you got to high school or then you got to college. And let's just say your life looks radically different today. At least your understanding of God. Wherever you are in your journey of faith, I just want you to consider 
the idea of baptism for a moment. A couple of things I would say about baptism. One of the things is baptism is a sacred event, but it doesn't necessarily make you any more loved by God. So this is one of the reasons why I encourage kids to wait as long as they can. Now, a lot of kids, especially like in that fifth grade year, are going, I want to be baptized, I want to be baptized, because one of the motivational things is to please mom and dad. But I would like to say, hold off on baptism until peer pressure really starts to kick in, because then ownership of faith also starts to kick in. That's an important thing. Uh, and so I tend to say, you know, I, I never like to baptize kids before second grade, but if I have my preference, wait till middle school. Wait till high school. Because then their faith starts to take on their own. They've gotten old enough to actually ask questions and wrestle with stuff on their own. But um, baptism, I think, also reveals. Like I said, baptism is one of those things that, although it's a great, it's a sacred event, it doesn't make us any more loved by God. The best picture that I see coming out of baptism is Jesus at the onset of his public ministry is his great coming out. And what does Jesus do? He leaves Jerusalem, he wanders out to the wilderness, he finds John the Baptist, and he imposes his will on John, going, I've got to be baptized. John's like, no way, I'm not even, I'm not even worthy to untie your sandals. He's like, we got it. And the voice from heaven says, this is my son with whom I am well pleased, and whom I really love. The point is this, before Jesus, before you or I, before Jesus builds any kind of spiritual resume, before Jesus raises anyone from the dead, heals anyone from blindness, before Jesus, like, casts out any demons, before he does anything of note, God has his divine affirmation on So for those of us who are trying to to make ourselves more presentable, make ourselves more lovable, God, to his son, says, I'll take him as he is right now. He hasn't done any good except learn a trade. <laughs> and so what we need to understand about baptism is a sacred moment, but it doesn't make us any more love by God. The second thing I would simply say is baptism is a public declaration of a very personal choice. Like my mom, it was a chance to have a public allegiance in among a community of people who weren't going to be judgmental of her citizenship, but it was going to be a declaration that I am now known as an American. I was born in Norway, but now I'm an American. I'm going to do all I can to make this a better country and raise my kids as Americans. So it is in the kingdom of God. When we choose to be baptized, what we're saying is, I want to align my life in Christ. And I can't do that alone. So I need a community of faith that we call the body of Christ, the church, to walk with me in that journey. I came in here living tonight, but the body of Christ, somehow, spiritually, emotionally, I couldn't wait to get up here tonight. I can't understand or, or manufacture that other than I came with what I have. This is what it means to be in Christ and the body. The last thing I would say is baptism is a symbolic act of new life. So um, it symbolizes very practically the death, the resurrection, and the new life of Christ. This is how we identify with who 
then if you've never been baptized, or maybe if that decision of baptism has been made for you, I would encourage you, like Jesus did, to make a decision. Maybe you were sprinkled as a child. Look, it's not like you can take. But if you would make that decision of the will, engage your will and say, I do. It doesn't create salvation, but what it does is it declares your allegiance. And so in the next couple of months, after we get past Easter, I want to host Mission Hill's first baptism. We don't have a date in mind, but I just wanted to cast the net and see if any of you would pray about, would have questions, or would consider being baptized. Maybe this creates questions in your family. Maybe you want to be baptized as a couple. Maybe the, the, the trajectory of your life took a right turn, and now your life looks different than how it did a decade ago. But let's talk about it. Begin to pray about what baptism would mean to you. And then let's, let's put some you know, planning together. We're just going to close in prayer now. And uh, uh, if you want to come up and join me, we have just a couple of songs. Uh, but let's, let's pray together uh, in this moment. Father, I thank you that we all inherit this ability to begin again. That it wasn't just a once and for all, I'm sorry, Jesus, forgive my sins. Uh, or you were, you were raised from life. I thank you that the promise is a new life and we can experience renewal again and again and again. And so I pray that you would resensitize our hearts as necessary. I pray that you would bring counsel of, uh, of wisdom into our life. I pray that you would bring circumstances into our life. I pray that you would resensitize our hearts. I pray that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see that which you see. Uh, and I ask that those who are processing maybe a first-time decision, saying, I do to you, that they would be warmed by your presence your divine affirmation. That they wouldn't have to earn their way into your kingdom citizenship, but they would simply come full surrender. All that they have, all that they are, saying, I do. I pray that those who uh, have or have not been baptized would also think about what it means to make a public confession of an already Thank mm -hmm. you.